Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. This time we're going to get into our study, continue our worship by studying the inspired Word of God. And so if you want to get a head start, uh, please open up to Mark uh, chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're going to start at the 55th verse, verse 55. But before we do, we're going to pray. Father, we thank you once again for allowing us to come together and worship you, give you honor. We pray, Father, that we'll have open and receptive hearts to receive your word And whatever work you desire to do in us and through us via your Holy Spirit. I pray for the gift of teaching, Lord, and I pray that I would decrease and you increase. But we pray, Lord, that you again will be glorified and that people will leave this place better than when they came in. We also pray for those who will be sticking around to help out, that you strengthen their bodies as well, Lord. And we appreciate whatever help we're going to receive In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. All right, Mark chapter 14, verses 55 through 72. And the title of tonight's message is Overcoming Disappointment with Ourselves. Overcoming Disappointment with Ourselves. Now, many of us have experienced disappointment with others at some point in time. And many times we've gotten over it. But what's hard many times is when we disappoint ourselves. Because when that happens, we many times have a hard time overcoming it. So sometimes in that regard, we treat others better than we do ourselves. We can overcome disappointment in others, but have a hard time overcoming that disappointment when we do something that we know is wrong. Now, tonight we're going to look at what happened to Peter, and we're going to use it as a springboard for a lesson on how to overcome this disappointment with ourselves. Because if you haven't experienced that, it it may come, and therefore you can be prepared to take it on. Or maybe one day you will come across somebody who is going through this struggle and you can minister to them. And so however the Lord wants to use it, we pray that he'll have his way tonight. And so in Mark 14, 55, it says, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Matthew 26, 59 says that they even sought false testimony Against him. They were looking for false witnesses. In Mark 14 56, now we're back there, it says, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Now, if you pay attention to the scriptures and look at all of the gospel accounts Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John you can see that there were three phases of Jesus' trial before the Jewish authorities. And there were also 
three phases of his trial before the Roman authorities. But tonight we're going to deal with the first two phases of Jesus's trial before the Jewish religious leaders. Now, remember that Mark in this gospel account did not record the preliminary trial before Annas. You see, Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was the official high priest. Now, Annas had been high priest during A.D. 6 or 7 until A.D. 15. And he was removed from office at that point by Valerius Gratis, who was the Roman procurator of Judea. But this Annas continued to have influence in later years, even though his son-in-law is the official high priest at this point. But now, if you want to see this preliminary trial before Annas, you would need to Take a look at John chapter 18, verses 12 and 13, and also John chapter 18, verses 19 through 23. Again, that will show us what happened during that pre-trial before Annas. And so this will be the first phase of Jesus's trial before the Jewish religious authorities. And John chapter 18, verse 24, tells us that Annas has sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas. Again, he was the official high priest. And so that's where he sent Jesus after that preliminary trial. And, and Jesus was probably sent by him from one wing of the building to the other. Or maybe it was that Caiaphas' house was somewhere on the same premises as Annas' house. But here, as we take a look in Mark chapter 14, and you would have to read verses 53 through 65, we see that Jesus is now on trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And this is the second phase of his trial before the Jewish religious authorities. And by way of reminder, I want to share with you that the Sanhedrin, by the way, is the great council. It's the highest Jewish court. You know, and it consisted of 71 members in Jerusalem. And so it will be made up of scribes. These were the lawyers. These were the experts in the law of Moses. It was made up of the elders and other prominent members of the high priestly families. And of course, it was made up of the high priest at this time. Remember, it's Caiaphas. And he was the president of the assembly, the president of the Sanhedrin of this Jewish high court at this point. Now, time-wise, it's probably around midnight. So remember, Jesus was arrested late uh, Thursday night. And so it's probably around midnight at this point or between midnight and daybreak of Friday morning. Now, if you paid attention to verse 55, you can tell that these Jewish religious leaders already had it in their minds to kill Jesus because it says they sought testimony against him to put him to death. They already figured out he was guilty and they wanted to put him to death. And now they were going backwards looking for testimony because they wanted to make it look like they had a valid reason to have him killed. Now, apparently these religious leaders were 
willing to overcome God's commandment because Exodus 20 verse 16 says, you shall not bear false witness or testify falsely against your neighbor. But they were willing to overlook that because of their envy of Jesus. In verses 57 to 59, it says, then some rose up and they bore false witness against him, him being Jesus. And they said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. And within three days, I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. You know, people still misquote Jesus. Because if you really want to know what Jesus said and what he meant, you can look at John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. Because what Jesus was really talking about is the temple of his body being destroyed and then being resurrected. He was talking about his body, but they misquoted him. Of course, we know that there's still people today who do the same thing. You know, there's some video you know, I don't even know the guy's name, and I really don't think it matters. But this guy is some supposed woke pastor on the Internet, and, and he said that Jesus was a racist. He said Jesus was a racist because of the comment he made to the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus for help in getting a demon cast out of her daughter. See, in Mark 7 27, Jesus responded to that lady's request by saying to her, let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And so he took little dogs and said that Jesus was a racist. He used a racial slur, this so-called woke pastor. Now, this woke pastor, and I have that in quotation marks, he suggests that, that Jesus also had to repent of that racism. And after repenting of that racism, after being confronted by the Syrophoenician woman, then he healed her daughter. My, how do people twist the scriptures? It is demonic. But in reality, they read it in context. Jesus was using puppy or little dog. Speaking of a pet dog, and he was using it as an illustration And all he was saying was that he came to minister to the Jews first, the Israelites first. In his plan of salvation, they would have first dibs, so to speak. Why? Because the word of God was given to them first. So they were supposed to expect the Messiah. But it was always in his plan to save the Gentiles. If you read the Old Testament scriptures. But all he was saying was that, hey, there's an order to this. This is what I came to do first. But he was also using that conversation with that woman to draw out her faith, which he did, by the way, and then ended up healing her daughter. And so this so-called false teacher, woke pastor, was absolutely wrong. And, And it's too bad because a lot of people get their theology from YouTube. And so people are going to bite on that. And it's sad. And it should be upsetting. See, but just like these witnesses here, these false witnesses here in the scriptures who were coming against Jesus. 
Again, there's many false witnesses today. There's many people who would twist Jesus's words today. And we know by the word of God that it was necessary for the testimonies of witnesses to agree. They had to agree. Just as it says in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, it says, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Now, these religious leaders knew that they would need more than one to testify against Jesus. And so they continued to hope and look for witnesses. They didn't care if they were false Witnesses giving false testimony. They didn't care if they were lying. And even though they lied, twisted Jesus's words. Even then, their testimony did not agree, as the scriptures tell us in our lesson. And that just points out the fact that a lie will never will never stand against the truth. You see, the truth is steady and it's firm and lies are inconsistent and they won't hold up. They're shaky. For example, there are inconsistencies in the changing of doctrines and false religions and cults. But the Bible has not changed. And of course, people can see what the original text look like by looking at all of the manuscripts that have been discovered. The New Testament scriptures alone, and I'm just talking about the Greek partial and whole manuscripts. And the manuscript, by the way, means that it was written by hand. This is before the typewriter was invented. And so nearly 6,000 partial and whole Greek manuscripts. And that's just speaking of the New Testament. But thousands and thousands more if you at the Old Testament manuscripts. And so people can look at those and compare them with what we have today and see what the original text looked like. Now, the Bible, of course, was written over a span of 1,500 years, from about uh, 1,400 B.C. to 400 B.C., and then you had those 400 years of silence, and then the New Testament was written in the original first century and then you can see that there was a collection of 66 books collected over that period of time over that period of 1500 years by 40 different human writers all inspired by the same spirit so really it's God who's the author but he set aside certain men to write down his words that he breathed out and even though a lot of these people never met even though these scriptures were written on different continents, different circumstances, di different literary styles, it still has one consistent message. And that one consistent message is about Jesus, and, and it's about God's plan for redeeming mankind. And so you can see this scarlet thread from Genesis through Revelation. One consistent message, 1,500 years God used to compile these 66 books, different people that he used, and yet and still one consistent message. You're going to get the same God in the Old Testament as the New. 
Some people will say, oh, there's a different God in the Old Testament. No, it's not. Oh, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. Well, to those people who say that they haven't read Revelation, it is the same God. Oh, the God of the New Testament of a God is a God of grace. God was always gracious because the scripture says that Noah found what? Grace in God's sight. It is the same God, one consistent message. But now in verses 60 through the first half of 61, it says, And the high priest stood up in the midst, and he asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent and answered nothing. And now Paul's right there. Now the question is, why was Caiaphas upset that Jesus wasn't speaking? And he was upset because they didn't have a real case against Jesus. I believe that frustrated him. And perhaps he wanted Jesus to say something that would incriminate him. And Jesus answered nothing. And Jesus just stayed in line with what the Old Testament scriptures said about him. So in Isaiah 53, 7, it says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted. In other words, he was punished or treated harshly. Yet Jesus, the Messiah, that's who it's talking about in Isaiah 53. He opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Again, that's Isaiah 53 verse 7. And so even at this moment, Jesus, although quiet, he was silently teaching us a lesson. Those of us who are still reading this inspired, recorded word, we're learning a lesson from Jesus' silent at a moment where he's being accused and lied on. He was teaching us something. And the lesson that we learn from this, from Jesus' silence, and even though people are accusing him of things, the lesson we learn is that we don't need to put out all of the fires of misinformation about us. We don't need to go around trying to stomp out rumors about us or have truths about us. Let God fight that battle. You continue to serve the Lord. You continue to pray. You continue to spend time with him and his word and fellowship with the saints, small group, larger group, Wednesday nights, Sundays, men or women's ministry. You continue to do those things and you let God Take care of the rest. And so it tells us in verses 61 and 62, again, beginning at the second half of 61, it says, again, the high priest asked him, asked Jesus, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? See, the Jews tried to avoid saying the name of God out of reverence for the name. And so that's why they would use the word bless. And Matthew 26, verse 63, says that the high priest says that I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, the son of God. And back in Mark 14, 62, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power or of the powerful one. Speaking of the father. And coming with the clouds of heaven. Now this is speaking about a second coming. 
Now, this is the coming after the rapture. So you have the rapture, you have tribulation period, then you have the second coming when he comes with the clouds of heaven. But notice that Jesus finally gives an answer. For Jesus had to answer when it came to identifying who he is. God cannot deny himself. He cannot deny who he is. And so, yes, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Christ because he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. But even more than that, Jesus is the son of God, which means what? It means that he is God by saying he's the son of God. That's what it means. And that's how the Jews understood it. If you rewind and go back to John chapter five, verse 18, they understood claiming that God was his father or claiming to be the son of God. They understood it to mean equality with God because it says this in John 15, 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath. And in this instance, it's talking about him healing a man and telling that man to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath day. But anyway, not only did Jesus do that, but they were also upset that he said that God was his father. And notice it says making himself equal with God. And so for Jesus to say that he is the son of God, it means that he has the same nature as God. Whatever essence God the father has, he has that same essence. Whatever DNA the father has, Jesus has that same DNA, which makes him equal with God the Father. They understood that. And so now Jesus claims to be both Messiah and God or the Son of God. And at that, in verse 63 of Mark 14, it says that the high priest Caiaphas tore his clothes. It was a sign of sorrow or outrage at what Jesus has said. And the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? We don't need any more witnesses. Shut it down. You have heard this blasphemy. You have heard this insult or this great disrespect of God. What do you think? He's talking to the Sanhedrin, those who were assembled, and they all condemned Jesus to be deserving of death. And so from the narrative, we see that that they put Jesus under oath and they commanded him to tell the truth about who he is or who he claims to be. And he told them the truth and they heard the truth, but they weren't willing to receive the truth. And so they condemned Jesus for what? For telling the truth. And they charged him with blasphemy. And according to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, blasphemy was punishable by death. But of course, we know that these charges were false. Jesus really is the Messiah and the son of God, God himself. So now before we claim that something Jesus said or something from the Bible isn't true, I wonder if we're really doing our research. I I wonder if we're being like the Bereans and searching out what's being taught from the word of God. I wonder if you're using the cross references to get more understanding of that verse that you're on. I wonder if you're just basing your theology off of one verse taken out of context, but not reading what comes before or after the verse, not understanding the purpose of that book or letter in the Bible, or not even studying that word. 
So people can take things out of context or even say that something that Jesus said or something from the Bible isn't true. And I gave you that horrible example from earlier. And unfortunately, that's a real life example from that so-called woke pastor. The question is, are we investigating what we hear? Because Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin at that time, they didn't investigate. So, okay, you claim to be the Messiah, the son of God. Let us research that. Oh, they didn't care. They were envious of him. And so for us today, for people who come after us, the thing to remember is that if Jesus is who he says he is, then that means his words are true. So that means that to not obey what he said, since he is the Messiah and the son of God, and he proved it through the resurrection. That means to not obey him would have eternal consequences. Because, yes, Jesus taught on sin. He he taught about hell. He taught that he's going to come back. He taught on these things. He, yes, he taught on love and taught on being merciful. He taught on plenty. So because Jesus is God, his words, of course, are true. And so we better be careful of rejecting him because it has eternal consequences. In verse 65 of Mark 14, it says, then some began to spit on him. And to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers or these temple police, they struck him with the palms of their hands. In other words, they they slapped him. Luke 22, verse 65 says, and many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. And so they wanted Jesus to prophesy and tell them who struck him while he was blindfolded. Now, that's actually cruel because if you're blindfolded and you can't see where the punches are coming from, you can't roll with the punches. You're going to take those punches right on and could get really hurt. And so he didn't have time to brace for the hits or even the duck. And so it was cruel. They did a lot of cruel things to Jesus. Nothing that wasn't prophesied. See, in Isaiah 50, uh, verse 6, it says, I gave my back to those who struck me. And my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. That's how we know Jesus had a beard. And I do not hide my face from shame and spitting. Oh, that's what they're doing. This was written hundreds of years prior to what we read in today in Mark. And so as we go through this, as we go through the narrative, as we go through Passion Week or this week that Jesus would suffer and die on our behalf. Because we're the sinners. Our sin separated us from God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's supposed to be our punishment, but Jesus is taking that on for us. So we need to pay attention to what Jesus went through for us and hopefully gain a greater appreciation for him. Verses 66 through 70, it says, now as Peter was below in the courtyard, One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. 
But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out to the porch or the entryway, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again. You know, Matthew 26, 71 said, another girl saw him. But the servant girl began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. In verse 7, he says, but he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean and your speech or your accent shows it. Now, all of this was going on with Peter while Jesus, of course, was on trial. But notice what these people say in verse 70 and trying to prove that Peter was with Jesus, that Peter was one of his disciples. Notice what they said. See, some of these people told him that his speech gave away the fact that he was from Galilee. His speech gave him away. Now, I just wonder tonight if the way we talk give us away. I wonder tonight if the way we talk show that we belong to Jesus, that we're his disciples. In other words, can people tell that we are a part of Jesus's group by the way we talk? See, Colossians 4, 6 says this. It says, let your speech always be with grace or loveliness or kindness, seasoned with salt. So in other words, let your speech be pleasant, engaging, sensible, that you may know how to answer each one. I, I wonder if we're following this verse. No, all of us have come short in that area at some point. For some of us recently. But let our speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. May our speech give away the fact that we're born again Christians. May our speech give away the fact that we've been hanging out with Jesus. And then he began to curse. Verse 71. That means he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, began to swear an oath. I don't know this man of whom you speak. The second time the rooster crowed. And what's sad is uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 61 says that at that point, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And then Peter called to mind, as we continue in verse 72, he called to mind the word that Jesus has said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny or disown me three times. Remember, he told him that in Mark 14, 30. And when Peter thought about it. He wept. In fact, Matthew 26, 75 tells us that he didn't just weep. He he wept bitterly, bitterly. It's a bitter weeping that he was going through at this point. See, when someone makes a mistake or sins, it's not time to gloat or look down on that person. Peter is probably taking some flack right now as we're here in this point of the study. We're just reporting the facts and we're trying to glean whatever God wants us to glean from the study. But yes, when someone makes a mistake or when they sin, we don't gloat. We don't look down on that person. In fact, if we are looking down, it better be to look down to help that person get back on their feet. But also we should learn From this mistake, 
we should learn from the sin of denying the Christ. But the question needs to be answered tonight. The question is, why did Peter fail? And his failure, of course, was in denying that he knew Jesus. But why did he fail in this instance? And I believe in unpacking or answering this question, we can find out reasons that many of us have failed or maybe still failing today. And the first thing is that he was self-confident. Peter was self-confident because when Jesus told him earlier in Mark 14 that all of them will be made to stumble because of him this night, Peter is the one who said, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. If they're made to stumble, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not stumbling. I'm going to be okay. And then Jesus said to Peter specifically, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you would deny me three times. And again, that's Mark fourteen thirty. But he spoke more vehemently. He continued to insist, speaking of Peter, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And to Peter's defense, the other disciple said, likewise. But that's one reason that he failed in this situation. He was self-confident, depending on self, but also he was prayerless. Because remember in Gethsemane, while he was supposed to be praying, he was sleeping. Jesus told him to watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but guess what? The flesh is weak. And so prayerlessness in that garden of Gethsemane, but also he was not alert. He was not watching. Again, he was sleeping. And Jesus had to keep going back to him like, why are you sleeping? Another thing we saw about Peter of why he failed is that he used the wrong tool in the spiritual battle. You know, Jesus said in the last study that this is the hour of darkness. Satan is going to get his licks right now, but we know that Jesus claims the victory. But in that spiritual battle, Peter was using the wrong tool because it says that he pulled out a sword and he chopped off Malchus's right ear. And Malchus was one of the servants of the high priest using the wrong spiritual weapon. Oh, that can get us in the world of trouble. That can cause us to fail because we should be using the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We should be using the privilege of prayer that we have going to God, the father in the name of Jesus, praying in the Holy Spirit. Using the wrong spiritual Weapon or using the wrong weapon in spiritual warfare. But also we see that he followed Jesus at a distance. Mark 14, 54, the first half is said, tells us that Peter followed Jesus at a distance. Now, this was after Jesus was arrested, after he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He followed Jesus at a distance. That just reminds me tonight that some people are satisfied with being a secret Christian. And so, of course, that can lead to failure. But then we saw, as we learned in our last study, that that he warmed himself at the enemy's fire. And some believers or those who claim to be believers are doing the same thing. They're compromising, 
trying to fit in. They're warming themselves at the enemy's fire, at the world's fire. And they're adopting to or adapting to the world's way of thinking. And many people who claim to be Christians, they deny Christ indirectly through words and actions. They, in other words, talk and or act like they don't even know Jesus. You can't tell the difference from them and anybody else in the world. And this world system, the scriptures tell us, is under the sway of the evil one. It's under the sway of Satan. And so to copy the world or this world system will be to copy Satan. And so, yes, there are many who claim to be Christians who still do it indirectly today. But now as we see in verse 72, in that last part of it where it says, and when he thought about it, he wept. When he thought about Jesus' words coming true, that he would deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowed twice. When he saw that that's been fulfilled, he just wept bitterly. And so it is obvious tonight that Peter was disappointed with himself. He was disappointed with himself and he was disappointed because he, he did something that he never saw himself doing. He, he thought that he would even die with Jesus, especially at this point. That he would never stumble, even if anybody or everybody else stumbled. And so to make it personal tonight, I want to ask, have you disappointed yourself lately? Is there anybody who's a Peter in this situation tonight? See, what adds to this disappointment is that, disappointment is that we, like Peter, we thought we were better than we really are. We thought that we were stronger than we really are. Oh, we had the attitude of we thought it could only happen to them, but not us, not me. Oh, that could only happen to people at other churches, at other fellowships in this family or that family. But it can't happen to me. I would never be made to stumble. I would die for Jesus. Or maybe some people had that attitude of, uh, I thought I was past that sin. I thought I was past that struggle. And so we begin to let our guards down because we thought we were past it because we had victory in one or two situations. But even refs in boxing tell the fighters to protect yourself at all times. I remember once seeing a boxing match where this guy was trying to apologize to the other boxer and he didn't have his guard up. The other boxers caught wind of it or he saw that and he started and he just punched the guy two times, knocked him out because the other guy's guard was down. And spiritually speaking, we we let our guards down because we think we're past something. We think we're good. We think we're okay. But guess what? The flesh, the world and the devil, the enemy, they don't play fair. Oh, you let, you let your guard down, you're going to get knocked out. But now, despite our setback, guess what? The good news is that there are good reasons to be encouraged. See, despite our setback, there are good reasons, once again, to be encouraged. And why is that? Because, number one, God is not surprised. He's not surprised by anything we do. When he first saved us, he, he knew what he was getting. 
He's not surprised by the good we do. He's not surprised by the bad we end up doing, by the mistakes we made. Even after being saved, he knew exactly what he was getting. Just like he knew exactly, even though he called Peter and called him to be an apostle, he knew that he would deny him at this point in the courtyard of the high priest. And he still called him and he still used him. God is not surprised. The scriptures tell us that God knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. But also, we learn this, that that God loves us in and through our problems. So we have reasons to be encouraged despite our setbacks. We know that he loves us in and through those situations because he loved Peter anyway. We can take a lesson from Peter. And why is God able to love? Because that's who he is. The scripture says that God is love. And so he can't stop loving. It doesn't mean that he's not a God of wrath either. But he always loves. But another reason we have to be encouraged despite our setback is that God is ready to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as it tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And God does that because it tells us that he's faithful and he's just. But then another good part about that for us as believers that we should be encouraged about, in spite of our mistakes, is that We have an advocate in Jesus. Now, this Greek word behind advocate is is one who pleads another cause to a judge or an intercessor. In other words, he's our defense attorney, our defense lawyer. Paints a picture of a lawyer representing his client before a court of law. As it tells us in 1 John 2, 1, it says, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin, but guess what? If anyone sins, if you sin as a believer, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, like that one Bible scholar pointed out the fact that he didn't say with God, he says with the Father. That means as believers, unfortunately, if we do sin, we don't lose the relationship. He's still the Father. He's still our Father. But you're out of step with him. That means you're not in fellowship with him, but the relationship is still there. But praise God, we have an advocate with the father in Jesus. And the reason Jesus is effective in this present ministry as advocate at the right hand of the father is because of the effectiveness of his blood to cover all sins, to pay for all sins, past, present and future. Therefore, he's able to be an effective advocate or defense lawyer for us. Oh, the devil, he's called, who's called the accuser of our brethren, who accuses us day and night before God. Whatever he accuses us of, anytime we fail or whatever the case may be, Jesus is our defense lawyer. He's our advocate. He's able to say, I paid for that sin. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. Because he's advocate, because of the power in his blood, because of what he accomplished on Calvary's cross. Yes, those sins are once again paid for. 
But we also should be encouraged despite our setback. When we mess up like Peter did in the situation. We should be encouraged because it's an opportunity. If we're still alive, if we're still breathing, we have an opportunity to come back stronger and better than before. I like what it says in in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Now, remember, this is before Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And before he went there, he told Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you. That he may sift you as wheat. Now, in the Greek, that word you there is in the plural. And so what he's really saying here is that Satan wants to sift all the disciples as wheat. But then when we get to verse 32 and we see the word you there, it's singular in Greek. So in verse 32, he's talking specifically to Peter now. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And notice this, and when you have returned, he didn't say if, but when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And so that should provide some encouragement for us as well, that we have an opportunity as long as we made it alive out of that sin, out of that mistake. We have a chance to come back stronger and better than ever before. See, we should have that attitude that, hey, just like with Peter, when I come back. When I get back on my feet, when I confess my sin and be restored in fellowship with my heavenly father, when I become restored in fellowship with my savior, Jesus Christ, I'm going to help my brothers. I'm going to help my sisters. I'm going to, I'm going to tell them not to fall into the trap that I fell into. I'm going to tell them not to fall into that same mistake that I fell into. I'm going to tell them to stay in the word of God. I'm going to tell them instead of sleeping, they should be watching. They should be praying. I'm going to tell my brothers and sisters when I come back to not use the wrong weapon as we are in spiritual warfare. Oh, when I come back, I'm going to help my brothers and sisters to get better just as I got better. I'm going to help them to not make the same mistakes that I've made. In other words, we want to use that setbacks as a springboard for a major comeback. We want to use that setback, as I repeat that, as a springboard for a major comeback. So tonight, if you have fallen into sin and you did what you never thought you would do, and you're beating yourself up, you're allowing the enemy to beat yourself up, yes, confess it, repent. Of that, get back in fellowship with the Lord. You have an advocate. I'm speaking to the true believers. So I would encourage you to not waste. Don't waste what you've gone through. Don't waste the lesson that you're supposed to learn from that. But come back bigger and stronger and better than ever before. And, And like what Jesus told Peter, when you have returned to me, when that fellowship is restored, strengthen your brethren, strengthen the other saints, strengthen those children in kids' life and Sunday school and junior high and high school ministry. Let them know the pitfalls in this life. Let's pray as the worship team comes to the stage. Father, we thank you 
for your forgiveness. We thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that Jesus, Father, is at your right hand and he's making intercession for us. Yes, he is our high priest. He is our advocate. There's no accusation coming from the enemy that will prevail against people who are in Christ. There is no condemnation for the person who is in Christ Jesus. And I pray for anyone tonight who is going through it, Father, that you would bring them out. That you remind them that you're with them. That you remind them that you love them. That you remind them of that power that, that is in your name. Stir their hearts to call upon you for help and not rely on the strength or so-called strength in their flesh. And I pray for anybody who has not put his or her faith in Jesus. My God, would you draw them to Jesus? May you tug on their hearts. May you make it uncomfortable for them to sleep tonight, to go another day without you, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who are gathered here and anybody else's on campus. We just pray, Lord, that when it's time for them to go back home, that you'll give them traveling grace, that you bless them, that you use them in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church, how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.